0: Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Turn with me to Psalm 55. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. We're supposed to be in Psalm 54. You probably recognize that, but Mikey was studying to preach Psalm 54 this Sunday. By Thursday, I was texting him because he has shingles. And so, I thought only old men got that. I didn't know. <laughs> Apparently not. This is, my medical knowledge has been exhausted at this point. So, Yes, okay, it's jingles, so I said, Mikey, why don't you preach Psalm 54 next week, and I'll just take Psalm 55, which I was going to do next week, this week. So we're going to be out of order. So look with me at Psalm 55. Your Bibles should have probably a bold heading, something like cast your burden on the Lord. But if you look just under that, there's a phrase that says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Masque of David, that's a kind of musical notation, A Masculine of David. That little superscript is part of the original text of the psalm, and it tells us who wrote it. It's a song written by King David. So let's read along. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would Wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy... ...who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask him to bless it to our hearing. Father, we do come before you as we hear David's song, his prayer in the midst of great grief and sorrow and betrayal. And we come before you asking that your spirit would illumine our own minds. That we would hear and see what it is the spirit is saying to the churches through David and his prayer. May we learn to lament as David laments here. To trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alec Moyer, a popular commentator, and his commentary on this psalm actually begins his commentary on this psalm with this line, at the end of my tether, there is a place called prayer. I don't even know if you know what that phrase means anymore. Children, maybe you'll know what I mean by coming to the end of the tether if I talk about a game called tetherball. Do they still play that, or am I dating myself? Tetherball still a thing? Okay, Good. So you know how tetherball works. I loved it when I was a child. I beat everybody on my campus at my school except a girl. And that was embarrassing, but she regularly defeated me in tetherball. But when you play tetherball, the ball is at the end of a tether or a rope. So the end of the tether is where that ball is. And if you hit it and it goes out on its first rotation, you see how far that tether or that rope goes. A tether is a line that restricts motion. So it's like saying, I'm at the end of my tether. It's like saying, I'm at the end of my rope. And by that, we mean, when we say, I'm at the end of my tether, or I'm at the end of my rope, what we mean when we say that is, I've run out of resources to deal with this any longer. I've got nothing left. I'm shot. I'm done. I'm at the end of my tether. At the end of my tether... There is a place called prayer. David has reached the end of his tether and he's gone to prayer. The only refuge you have left when you come to the end of your tether is the Lord Himself. There's nothing left but Him. And I know that many of you have reached the end of your tether. Perhaps you're suffering from illness. On an ongoing basis, or injustice, or you're overrun by family strife, and you're at the end of your tether. You're coping and you're running hard, but you have nothing left. And David wants you to know how to sing in that instance. For Psalms are prayers in the form of songs. How do you sing? When you're at the end of your tether, he wants you to know that at the end of your tether, there is a place called prayer. How do you sing there? The Lord is near you, and you are to cast your burdens upon him. So today, we're going to look at David's prayer as he's reached the end of his tether. Our psalm this morning is called the lament. There are various kinds of psalms. I don't know if you know this. The majority of the psalms are laments. Or imprecatory psalms. And precatory psalms also are in there. There's a few of those where David casts down curses upon his enemies. But lament is the majority of the Psalter. Now, we're a culture that likes to be a sort of happy, plastic, positive people. So we don't really have much of a place culturally for lament. Well, I've said this before. We've moved cemeteries as far out of our sight as we possibly can because we don't want to face reality. They used to be right outside the church doors. You walk in a church right past your dead relatives and when you walked in the door, you knew exactly why you were going in there because that problem you just saw needs to be resolved. But now we're a people. We're a people who just want to think and talk positively. So we don't know really what to do with Lamentation. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And David is giving voice to his burdens in this psalm with a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And in doing so, David's teaching us how to lament. So we're going to do this this morning. We're going to look first at David's lament before the Lord in verses 1 through 15, second, at David's confidence in the Lord. In verses 16 through 23. So David's lament, 1 through 15. David's confidence in the Lord, verses 16 through 23. So let's look first at his lament. Look with me at verse 1. Psalm 55 and verse 1. Give ear to my prayer, O God. And hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. David is complaining and moaning, as we'll see, and he asks the Lord to mercifully hear him. Note that David begins by asking the Lord to hear his prayer. He doesn't assume the Lord has to hear his prayer. He actually thinks it's a merciful thing for the Lord to hear his prayer. He tells the Lord, don't hide yourself from me. Of course, you know, the Lord can't hide himself. You understand that. It's a manner of speaking. What he's saying is, please don't be unmerciful and pull away. Don't draw away from me. Right now, I need you near me. You're the God who hears and who sees and who remembers. You're the God who knows. You're the God who draws near to the brokenhearted. And your silence right now would be unbearable to me. Why? Why would God's silence be unbearable to him? Look at verse 2. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. That word moan, by the way, when he says I moan, we don't really quite pick up the full nature of that verb in the Hebrew, but that verb picks up the sense of I must moan. Almost like I'm restless in my complaint and involuntarily I'm moaning. I'm so deeply troubled, it's this involuntary response from within me. Some of you probably understand this. You've probably been so overcome by oppression or betrayal or suffering that you're restless. You know, you can't sleep. You toss and turn. You pace around. You can't think straight. You just moan and sigh and feel overwhelmed. That's what David's talking about here. And saints, David understands when he calls out to the Lord that the Lord hears you, the Lord sees you, the Lord knows. He knows. Even your rambling and distracted prayers, when you're in the middle of the thick of that, your prayers start to ramble and be distracted, don't they? Even in the middle of that, when you're overwhelmed with grief, the Lord hears you. The Lord hears you. He makes sense of what you're asking for. But here's a question. Why is David at this point? What has grieved David so much that he's just restless in his complaint and involuntarily moaning, if you will. Look at Psalm 55.3. Because, here's the reason, because of the noise of the enemy. Because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. That's a summary of what you're going to see in verses 9 through 15. But let me just explain the language a bit. The phrase, the noise of my enemy or of the enemy, is a reference to the voice of his enemies. He's saying their words are oppressive. We use the word oppressive. Do you know what the word means? To be oppressed is to be under pressure that is prolonged and overwhelming. The idea here is David suffering a prolonged, cruel, and unjust accusation that's creating intense. Mental pressure or distress. You're going to see that when we get to 12 through 15. David's enduring slander. Prolonged and difficult attacks upon his person and his actions. And that slander was painful for David. Slander and betrayal are deeply painful acts when they're brought against us. They were deeply painful for the Lord Jesus. He was reviled, cursed falsely accused, his name was blasphemed. And believer, you are not greater than your master. Do you think if your master was slandered, you'll avoid the same? We should not consider it a strange thing when others hate us and revile us and slander us. Jesus makes that clear in John 15. For so they did to our master. It is what Satan, the accuser, the father of lies, and his followers do— Notice he also says, they drop trouble on me. That third phrase there, they drop trouble upon me. The verb actually means to hurl or throw trouble on him, like throwing a stone at somebody. The point is that David's adversaries are actively seeking to harm him, to cause him grief and pain, to punish him. They are laying false charges against David And really accusing him, saying that his own sin is the cause of all of his calamities. Why are his enemies doing that? Look at the last part of verse 3. And in anger, they bear a grudge against me. In anger, they bear a grudge against me. They're almost kind of cherishing their animosity against him. Their bitterness toward him, their grudge toward David has become so deep that they delight in persecuting him. And this causes deep grief for David. Look at the grief. Verse 4. Look there. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. That word anguish, when he says his heart is within anguish within him, that word anguish in Hebrew is the idea of writhing in pain. You ever seen someone writhe in pain? It's actually used often in the Hebrew Bible for the writhing in pain that happens when a woman gives birth. He's saying that that kind of pain is in my heart. It's writhing in pain. He's trembling with fear. Notice he says that, the terrors of death have fallen upon me. He's trembling in fear. He's scared to death and shuddering in horror. Look at verse 5. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. He's overwhelmed by it all. Overwhelmed to the point of death. Now, you might know, if you know you're New Testament well, that this is also reminding us of the Lord Jesus at his betrayal, isn't it? In the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what Jesus said to the apostles as he faced betrayal at the cross? What did he say? My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Even to death. Again, if the Lord Jesus has walked this dark path, so will his people. Young people. You may not have walked this dark path yet. Most of you probably haven't, but you will soon. You will soon. You're like, well, that's good news. Thanks for that. Glad I came this morning. I don't say that to discourage you, but to encourage you. You know what it means to be encouraged, to have courage or strength placed into you, to strengthen you? I am trying to encourage you to prepare yourself to humbly follow Jesus down every dark path that he graciously gives you. It's a privilege to walk the same path as our Lord Jesus. It's a privilege. It may be a dark road at times, but it always leads to glory. The path may be filled with travail, but these are the steps, in the words of Bunyan, to the celestial city. Look at Psalm 55 verses 6 through 8, though, we'll see how deep David's grief is in one more picture here. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far off. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. You guys know what this is like. I wish I could just run away from it all. It's just too much. I got to get out of here. That's what he's saying. He wants to escape the situation. I wish I had wings like a dove so I could fly away. I just want to get out of here. I want to go to the wilderness and find a rock of refuge to shelter in from the storm. You understand what this is like if you've ever reached the end of your tether. You know this sense. You just want to run away. You want to flee. You want to escape. And David is fleeing in one sense. He's running to the place called prayer. It's the place we all need to run. The Lord is our strong tower. Friends, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Do you flee to him? Or do you escape? This is a question. When you're under the pressure that he's talking about here, do you practice escapism or prayer? And what is your escape? Watching television? Video games? Social media? Pornography? Alcohol? Some other kind of drug or hobby? What's your escape? I can tell you that there are difficult days when I just want to unplug and watch TV and be mindlessly entertained. I don't want to think anymore. But you cannot escape the inward pain of suffering. You can't run away from it. I know you reach the point where you're like, I don't want to pray because I have no more energy left to face the reality of sin and distress that confronts me. But friends, you cannot run away from it. That's why we need to rest in Christ. We need to bring our case before the Lord and find our refuge and shelter in him. We need to be able to sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. So here's the question that confronts us. What specifically has caused David's lament? What's he going through that causes him to feel this way? Well, look at Psalm 55, 9. In 9 through 11, he's going to give us one answer, and then he's going to shift in 12 through 15 and give us another that come together. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. What's he doing? He's calling for a confusion of their ability to communicate. There's violence and strife in the city, and he's taking you back to Genesis 11. Do you remember Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel? What did the Lord do? He confused their languages. And he's basically saying confuse their languages because they're united against me i see violence and strife in the city day and night they go around it on its walls and iniquity and trouble are within it ruin is in its midst oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace these men are so active in conspiracy against david that they're like watchmen on the walls of the city Stoking more iniquity. Remember, the watchman on the walls would be there to protect the city. And what they're essentially doing is they're there to keep the city in iniquity. To keep it united in conspiracy against David. And the conspiracy runs so deep, the city is internally rotting. Men are taking advantage of one another fraudulently in the marketplace. What's the city here? Jerusalem. That's the city. And he's saying Jerusalem is overrun with liars, cheats, frauds and those who live for their own selfish gain, no matter what the cost. So they don't want to follow a just king. They want to overthrow him. There's a growing conspiracy against David in the city. The question people often ask, scholars wrestle with, is what event in David's life does this refer to? Where does it refer to? We're not entirely sure. I can tell you what the best guess is. My best guess is this is the conspiracy of Absalom, his son, and Ahithophel, his closest counselor. And I actually think he's probably talking about them both, not one or the other. Scholars want to locate it in one guy. But Absalom, his son, leads the revolt against David, and Ahithophel, his closest counselor, is the man who comes alongside of Absalom and helps Absalom rather than David. Look with me at 2 Samuel. Just keep your hand there in Psalm 55. Look with me at 2 Samuel verse 15. If you're not familiar with the Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get to Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Then you get to 1 Samuel and Second Samuel. If you get to 1 or 2 Kings, you've gone too far. 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Just to give you just a brief bit of context. Amnon had raped Absalom's sister. And David, as king and the father, had not really dealt decisively with that act. And Absalom is deeply angry. And so Absalom kills Amnon, his brother himself. And he turns against his father. So you're reading about it here, verse 1 of chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early. Now look what he did. He rose early. Rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. The gate of the city is where all the people would come for, if you will, to exchange wisdom, to talk. This is where the things happen. The gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Do you hear what he's doing? He's taking all the subjects who are coming to the king to the gate of the city to hear a judgment. He's saying, unfortunately, you don't have a king who wants to hear you. You have a good complaint, but this king doesn't really care about you. He's talking about his own father. Goes on to say, verse 3, Absalom would say to him, see your complaints are good and right. So I said, but there's no man destined by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. What Absalom essentially saying is, you don't have a just king. I could be the just king. And he used smooth speech to win them over. And he got a hold of their hearts. Now go down to verse 30, same chapter, First Samuel 15 and verse 30. Ahithophel is King David's closest counselor. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. His son has conspired against him. And all the people with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So the question here in Psalm 55 is, when David's talking about the wicked city, could he be talking about his own son, who is wickedly betraying him, and Ahithophel, his closest counselor, who is joined in the betrayal? I think he likely is, and it really leads us to the central point of Psalm 55— We've taught you guys about chiastic structures in Hebrew literature before. The way that the literature is structured, it leads you to a center point. Just for the sake of shortening that point right now. The center point of this psalm, if you look at the structure and the way a chiastic structure works, the center point is verses 12 through 15. The whole psalm is driving you there. So look at the center point of this psalm, verse 12. But it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. See, David's enemy is not an enemy, or it would be bearable. It's not an adversary who's come against him, or he could avoid him. Look at verse 13. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Verse 14, we used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Within God's house speaks to the corporate worship of the church. We walked together with the assembly of God's people in corporate worship in the church. This absolutely could be describing Absalom or Hithophel or both. They fit the descriptions given here. My equal, it's you a man, my equal. That speaks to the same rank or reputation. This is someone who stood next to you in life. My companion is a trusted or intimate friend. My familiar friend, it's like saying this, I knew you well, I knew you better than others. Or at least I thought I did. Sweet counsel, you were the one with whom I shared my heart and in whom I trusted my life. We went to worship together. We walked in God's house together. This is a fellow professing believer with whom David walked. This is a man who attended worship alongside of him. There's more descriptors of this betrayer, though. Look at verse 20. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. See, this betrayer violated or profaned his covenant. It's likely speaking to a covenant of friendship they had. In other words... This is a man with whom David had exchanged vows of some kind. We see covenants of friendship throughout the Old Testament, so this is likely what's happened here. They took vows in a covenant of friendship together. And this betrayer treats David like that relationship, like that covenant, like those vows never existed. Now look at Psalm fifty-five, twenty-one. 21. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The betrayer's speech was smooth like butter. He was speaking deceitfully and sweetly, intending to gain trust and then bring harm. His words were soft like oil, but were drawn swords. His words were intended to cut, to deliver blows. They came soft like oil, but they were actually drawn swords meant to destroy. The betrayer's words gained trust. The betrayer's words gained a false sense of security, only to later cut the person down. This is why the Proverbs warn us about trusting the man of smooth speech. The man who's constantly complimenting you. The person who always has a good compliment for you. The Proverbs warn us, don't trust that person. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Notice that? The wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. What David recognizes is that someone he thought was his closest friend was actually a deceitful enemy. Now David can see what's really happening with this, can't he? He can see that the smooth and soft words were actually a cover for a deceitful plan against him. This was a close and intimate friend with David, who was in covenant, who professed the same Christian faith, but was merely a pretender. He's a, as Jesus would say, a whitewashed tomb. Looks real good on the outside that's full of dead man's bones on the inside. This portrayer said all the right things as a disguise to win the approval of believers and then used those things as a weapon against them. He wooed them with his speech and destroyed them with his practices, deceiving others into blaming David for the troubles that came upon him. It's deeply distressing for David as it would be for any of us. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, commented really helpfully here. Listen to what he says. And if you have friends, I want you to hear this. I hope all of you do. So listen. None are such real enemies as false friends. Reproaches from those who have been intimate with us and trusted by us cut us to the quick. That's just all the way down. And they're usually so well acquainted with our peculiar weaknesses, they know you so well in your weaknesses that they know how to touch us where we are most sensitive and to speak so as to do us the most damage. David's grief and bewilderment over his betrayal is so deep that we read in his prayer to the Lord what we read in verse 15. Look there at Psalm fifty-five, fifteen. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. What he's saying here is really simple. He says, let death steal over them. It's essentially like, it's a phrase that means, may death deceive the deceiver. Like, this person's a deceiver. They've stolen, if you will. They've lied. So may death deceive them. May it come unexpectedly for them. Notice that he's changed the word to them, not just him. May he go, or they go to Sheol alive, is the idea of, you guys remember Korah's rebellion in Numbers? The earth opens up and swallows them alive? That's what he's talking about. May the earth open up and swallow them alive. Now, why such harsh calls for judgment? Last phrase in verse 15, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. The basic reason that David calls for their demise is that they're so wicked and deceitful that evil dwells in their home like a permanent resident. And in the same way, evil consumes their heart. So it'd be better for all involved, Lord, if you just took them out. That's David's lament. You guys understand, there are people who are so evil that we should pray, Lord, if they're not going to repent, take them out. We should. You might think, oh, that sounds crazy. Until you start considering men like Adolf Hitler. You consider some men in the world today, I won't go naming them all, who are enslaving people in concentration camps as we speak. Lord, take them out. They're evil. They're harming everybody around them. They have no fear of the Lord. David's confidence is in the Lord, and it's going to start coming out now that his lament has ended. Look at verse 16, verses 16 through 19. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. If you remember, there's a morning and evening sacrifice. A burnt offering. A burnt offering is because the idea is you give this animal, it's burned whole and completely and the smoke ascends and it's like I'm giving myself to you. I'm consecrating my whole life to you and the smoke of that is ascending to the Lord as a consecrated person. And so you would do that morning and you would do that evening because you're essentially marking off your whole day by giving to the Lord and in the middle of the day at noon, you, if you will, are praying again. And he's just saying basically at the morning sacrifice... I'm praying. At noon, I'm praying. At the evening sacrifice, I'm praying. In other words, my whole day is punctuated by prayer. I utter my complaint and I moan and you hear my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. For many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change, And do not fear God. See, God is going to answer my prayer, and God is going to save me, and God is going to judge my enemies. Why? Because they do not change, and they do not fear God. They unrepentantly continue on their course. They're not changing, and they're not fearing God are not unrelated concepts. These things are intimately related. Their hearts are hardened like pharaohs. They do not change because they're hard-hearted people who have no fear of God. They're like the fool in Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now they may profess faith in God. In fact, David's companions who have betrayed him are those who profess faith in God. And yet, they have no fear of him. Because their God is no God at all. He's the God of their belly. He's the God of their idolatrously inventive minds. He's not the God who is holy, 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 who the whole earth is full of his glory, who judges their sin and upholds the righteous standard of his law. Further, these wicked people seem to be prosperous in their evil deeds. Thus they do not fear the Lord, like the prosperous people Who were wicked in Psalm 73 when Asaph prays and says, My foot had almost slipped because I looked at the wicked and saw they were prosperous. Herein is the fundamental problem these people do not fear the Lord. And this makes any betrayer especially frightening. No one is more frightening to you than a man who does not fear the Lord. For there is then no abiding and transcendent governor for their heart. You guys know what a governor is? You know, they put a governor on a car to slow it down, or a governor keeps things in line, right, in check. You need an abiding and transcendent governor for your heart. If you do not have one, you're a dangerous human being. That's why when we set up the American Republic, a man like John Adams can make the comment that it's only a republic that's fit for a religious and moral people. Why can he say that? Because you can't have liberty in a country where people do not have an ability to self-govern because there is a transcendent, abiding governor who keeps them in line. Once you've lost the fear of the Lord in the culture, freedom will go away. Government must get bigger to restrain the evils of the populace that are not self-restrained. Because they've forsaken God. They become moral monsters. Children, you know what it looks like when someone doesn't fear the Lord. Kids, you know what this looks like. Let me give you an example. It's like when you obey your parents' rules only when they can see you. Right? So you don't obey the rules when your parents aren't around. If you fear the Lord, then you know that his holy eyes are ever upon you. We're not fearing the Lord looks like obeying God's word when it benefits you and fits your idea of wisdom. But ignoring God's word when it costs you or counters your own wisdom. We are particularly keen to obey God when the Bible agrees with what we already think. You guys know that? But what about when the Bible counters your understanding? Proverbs 3.5, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not some of it. And do not lean on your own understanding. Did you hear that? It doesn't say, sometimes lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, not some of them. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Not sometimes be wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Friends, Christians do not have, you don't understand, we don't have an edit feature in our Bible. I know you have one on your Word document, but you don't have an edit feature in your Bible. That doesn't exist here? You don't get to keep the parts you like and then edit out the parts you don't like? Those who do so do not fear the Lord. Don't fear the Lord. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he never asked your opinion about how he governs your life. Did you know that? God has never come down from on high and say, what would you like me to do with your life? I need some feedback from you. He's never asked. He actually doesn't care about your opinion. You're a creature. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. You're the servant. You do what he says in accord with his word. Listen to what he actually says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word or do you sit in judgment over it? If you fear the Lord, you tremble at it. That's why the man who does not fear the Lord is such a threat. There's nothing governing his heart and mind except his own thoughts of what benefits him. And if he professes faith, he will use the Bible as a weapon to justify his own behaviors and cut down anyone who disagrees with him. It's precisely what David's closest friends were doing. At the same time, what does David believe? David believes that the Lord will hear him and answer him. He believes the Lord will humble his betrayers. He believes the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those The Lord will humiliate these wicked betrayers. He believes that. That's what the Lord has always done. Think of the Exodus, most especially. Pharaoh was humiliated. He was brought low by God. And David encourages those singing this psalm in this regard. Look at Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your burden... Or your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. That does not mean, please hear this. It does not mean cast your burden upon the Lord and He'll remove it. He'll sustain you. It means He'll bear you up through them. He will not let your feet slip. I do not mean He will pick you up and carry you like that silly, you know, footprints in the sand picture, where the only footprints are God's and you don't have to do anything; you just get carried along. That's not life. He will make you walk through it. They will most assuredly be your footprints in the sand as you walk the path. But He will keep you in your integrity and strengthen your faith as you walk through it. Sovereign grace, you should trust the Lord with your anxieties. He is the God who cares for you, He will not let your foot slip. You may stumble a bit here and there, but your feet are upon the rock who is Christ. Years and years ago, Debbie, one of the women in our church, spoke to me about how she copes with her name being slandered. She, we were talking about it because my name was being slandered for different reasons than her name was being slandered. Mine in the public sphere in politics years ago, hers for more personal reasons, but she talked to me about it. And I will never forget what she said. I might not get the exact language she used, right? But she said, I'll focus on upholding the Lord's name and I'll trust him to uphold my name. I think that's exactly right. In fact, when Peter quotes from this psalm in 1 Peter 3 and verse 6, he says that if you humble yourself before the Lord at the proper time, he will exalt you. We're to be out exalting the name of the Lord and trusting him. To exalt us. Now look at Psalm 55 and verse 23, and we'll close. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. David concludes by telling us that the Lord will cast the evildoers in the pit of destruction. If they do not repent, the Lord will cut their lives short, they'll live out half their days. This is what happened with Ahithophel. Do you guys know what happened to Ahithophel, David's counselor, who turned against him? He hung himself shortly after his betrayal of David. It's also what happened to Absalom. He was killed in battle shortly after his betrayal of David. In other words, the Lord answered David's prayer in Psalm 55 and shortened the days of his enemies. And at its proper time, exalted David. But if we stopped here, I fear we would miss Christ so clearly being shown to us in King David. In fact, the early church Bible translator and theologian, Jerome, if you guys have ever heard of the Latin Vulgate, it was the Bible of the church for a thousand years. Jerome, who translated that, put this psalm in his commentary in the mouth of Christ regarding his betrayal by Judas. Christ was sorrowful to the point of death at his betrayal. Christ was betrayed by a close counselor and friend, one of the 12, his treasurer. A man who knew Jesus well, who knew where Jesus would be and when he would be there. That man betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas was sorrowful over his betrayal. But Judas's sorrow, like Ahithophel's, did not lead to repentance. Judas's sorrow led to self-pity and self-destruction. So Judas, who did not fear the Lord, hung himself. Just like Ahithophel did. Judas wanted no more of the consequences. That's for sure. He didn't want the consequences for his sins. The problem is he also didn't want the Lord. And friends, if Christ was so treated by his closest companion... What makes us think that we're greater than our master? We're not. As his followers, we tread the same paths he walked, and that will be our great and painful privilege. At the same time, I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus is not merely an example to you. He is an example to you, but he's not merely an example. He is your savior. He has purchased forgiveness for your sins at the cross. Christ was betrayed for you. He went to the cross to pay for your sins. I encourage you to trust in him for he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's our hope. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who was betrayed in the ultimate sense by Israel, by Judas, by the men he created and sustained and those for whom he came to redeem. And he endured all that not only as an example for us though a gloriously good example for us but also as a substitute for us standing condemned in our place absorbing all the slander and betrayal that satan could bring and absorbing all the just wrath due to us for our sins so that we'd be saved May we give thanks, may we be rejoicing in the privilege to walk the same dark road that Christ often walked, that will often face us as you, by your spirit, conform us to his likeness and lead us home to the celestial city. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.